it seems like we're taking a dramatic shift from a couple of nights looking at the identity of the Antichrist, and now we're just going to talk about love and fluff and these kind of things. Trust me, what we're talking about tonight is not fluffy. <laughs> it's a deep-seated principle, and it's going to be something, the foundation of God's government and the reason that Satan was so upset in the beginning to start with. This is the beginning of the great schism between Christ and his enemy, Satan, is this very law, the law of love. But before we get started with our presentation, before we get into a Bible study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this day, this ray of rest you've given us. And now as we come into this evening, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to be here. Not just in a vague sense that you're kind of in the room somewhere, but Lord, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to speak to each person here individually. Help them understand the truths of your word. Help us to present it clearly and help the application to be seated deep in the heart. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Worksheet number eight, the law of love. I imagine if you were to go down to the local supermarket somewhere or some stand in some parking lot of a mall and you were to ask and interview people and ask them the simple question, what is love? You would likely get a variety of answers. In fact, in our society today, love is one of those things that everybody talks about but no one can clearly define. You know, you have, uh, that same word is used for spaghetti and children, right? Puppy dogs and grandparents, everything. I love this. I love the sunset. I love this food. I love that person. I love this. And we just kind of throw that word around as a catch-all for pretty much everything. And sometimes we just basically water it down in our minds, perhaps, to think that love is a feeling, it's an affection, it's a fondness for something, and basically if I like it, that means I love it. Or if I'm interested in it, I love it. But biblically speaking, love is much, much bigger than mere passing affection or uh, superficial interest. Love is not a feeling, in fact, but a principle of, and what's that word in your notes there? Selflessness. The entire night's message is outlining this one idea. Love is not a feeling, it's not a flight of fancy, it's not a mere passing affection, but love is a principle of selflessness. It is a commitment to put others ahead of yourself. That's our thesis statement for tonight, and we're going to develop this using a whole lot of scriptural support. Okay, so let's go to page 1107 in our Pew Bibles. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a chapter known affectionately as the love chapter. If you've ever been to a Christian wedding, been to a church where people got married or something, odds are good that you heard either this entire passage or at least a portion of this passage stated from up front. And it's beautiful in its poetic language, but we'll start with verse 4 where we get a definition of love or at least a description of love that will help us understand what love really is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. Love suffers what? Long. That means it's patient and it's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Love does not, we're in verse 5 now, behave rudely. And here's a key thought, does not seek what? Its own. Does not seek its own, it is not. Provoked, it thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. 
It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And verse 8 finishes, love never fails. Okay? Love is this beautiful, unending, unfailing, long-suffering, kind thing. But notice some of the language that's used. Let's go back to verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. What does it mean to envy something? To want it. For whom? For yourself. I'm, I'm envious. I want that title, that position, that something. I, I, I'm jealous. I want for me. Right? Love doesn't do that. Love does not, and look at the next one, does not parade. What does it not parade? Itself. To parade itself is to, you know, kind of show off a little bit. Like, look at me, look at me. Love doesn't do that. It's not about itself. Love is not puffed up. You know, that's being big-headed, you know, thinking a lot about yourself, arrogant, boastful, proud. Love isn't like that, seeking uh, a position for itself. And then it goes on to say in verse 5, it does not seek its own. So if love does not seek its own, that means that love does seek for others, right? We get this concept here that love is not affection merely, but it's a principle of selflessness where you give of yourself for someone else instead of taking for yourself, whether it's envy or all those other things. Let's look at some more examples of this. Page 1027, John chapter 3. Likely the most well-known passage in all of Scripture. John chapter 3 and verse 16. Jesus invokes this word love. And he explains the love that the Father has for us. Of course, the Bible, the Apostle John later in 1 John would tell us that God is love. And before we read John chapter 3 and verse 16, I want us to wrestle with that simple three-word statement. In fact, it's the title of our message. And the, and the, the reason there's a big question mark because people look at that and say, is God really loving, as we've talked about before? But notice it's not just loving, and it's not just lovely. God is not just something nice to look at or someone who does loving things from time to time. Apparently, God is love itself, which is a very large claim. And thus, if 1 Corinthians 13 is correct about love, then you could simply put God is all of those things. God does not seek his own. God seeks for others. God does not take for himself, but he gives himself away. This is what true love is. And when we come to John chapter 3 and verse 16, again, arguably the most well-known passage in all of Scripture, we read these words. For God so what? Love the world that he gave. You will see consistently, in fact, we're going to demonstrate it, I'll show it to you tonight, directly from God's word, that there is invariably a connection between true love and the giving of yourself for others. Love, in its real, genuine, godly form, always manifests itself in self-sacrifice, giving for others instead of taking for yourself. Again, John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. He loved us so much that He gave. Love results in giving. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. That's going to be page 1121 in your pew Bible. 1121. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Here the Apostle Paul is writing about his life in Christ, his, 
after his experience of conversion, what his life is like now that it's hid in Jesus Christ. And notice what he writes. He says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. By the way, when someone's crucified, they die, right? He said, I have died. Self, I. Keep that in mind for a passage we're going to come back to later. I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. Uh, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. And now he defines who the Son of God is. Notice it says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. Jesus' love manifests in giving of himself for others. Let's go to the book right next door, Ephesians. Just to the right, Ephesians chapter 5. And if you want to correct this in your note, there is a little bit of a typo there. Verse 20 is a fine verse. It's just not the verse we're going to look at tonight. We're looking at chapter 5, verse 25. So you want to scratch that out and put it in your notes. If you want to share that with others, you will look that text up and say, it does not say that, okay? Because verse 20 doesn't. (laughs) But verse 25 does what we needed to do here. And now this is interesting. He's using, here the Apostle Paul again, is speaking in very practical terms to husbands and wives how they should regard each other in the marriage relationship. And in chapter 5 and verse 25, we see this counsel to the husbands. It says, husbands do what? Love your wives. Now, that doesn't be just feel good about them or have a light trifling affection for them, but you're supposed to love them the same way. Watch this now. Love your wives just as whom? Christ also loved what? And what did he do? And gave himself for her. He says, here's the practical application of God's love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And how did he do it? By giving himself for her. Over and over you see this connection between love and give. For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved loved me and gave himself for me. In fact, Joe, go to the book of John, back to the book of John, this time chapter 15. John chapter 15 and verse 13. Jesus himself explained this principle when he tells us what the zenith of love, the high point, the apex of all love is, is right here in verse 13. John 15 verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. So if you want to know what the greatest form of love is, the greatest love that can possibly be bestowed is right here. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's what? Life for his friends. Laying down your life for your friends, putting you down for the sake of others. He said this is the epitome of love. Greater love has no one than this. And then would lay down his life for his friends. So the question is, what is love? Love is the principle of putting others ahead of yourself, that manifests in giving of yourself for others. Love is a principle of selflessness for the good of others. Thus, the opposite of that would be selfishness for the good of yourself, right? These are the two big warring ideologies in the universe right now, okay? God's government, back to our fill-in-the-blanks here, God's government is selfless 
but Satan's heart became selfish. Okay? This, my friends, is the great divide between Christ and Satan. This is the battle line in the war. The great controversy is split into right between selfish and selfless. Now, of course, Christ is the creator, and Lucifer was a created being, okay? But aside from the ontological disparity where one is the created and one is the creator, the big difference between Christ and Satan is Christ and the Godhead he's a part of, God, is love, and love gives for others, where Lucifer started seeking for himself. Selfless versus selfish. You know, I've often heard that the opposite of love is hate. And that's not true. The opposite of love is self. Okay? If selflessness is the definition of love, then the opposite would be self-seeking, self-aggrandizement, self-fulfillment, self-gratitude, self-ish. This is the great divide in the great controversy. Two ideologies warring against each other. By the way, we see this clearly demonstrated in this Isaiah 14, a passage we've looked at before, but let's look at it again. Page 667 in your pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 14. The prophet speaks of the fall of Lucifer and why he was cast out of heaven, why he was no longer in harmony with God's government. What was going on that led to his expulsion? Isaiah 14, starting with verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. And verse 13 says, for, that is, for this reason what I just said occurred. For you have said, and where did he say it? In your heart, something was going on the inside of him, right? I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. All of those things that 1 Corinthians 13 says that love doesn't do, like envy and puff itself up, Lucifer started doing in heaven. I will ascend. I will exalt. I will be like God. So instead of being satisfied with the position that the Lord had, which was a highly exalted position already, right? We've already talked about how this, this covering cherub was the right-hand man of God. He was in the courts of God. He was right there beside Christ. But for some reason, he wanted more. He was dissatisfied with the position assigned to him. He wanted to climb and exalt himself higher. It has been accurately stated that Lucifer had a very severe eye problem, right? He wanted for himself. Now, if this is the great disparity between God's government and Lucifer's competing ideology, selfless versus selfish, it should be no surprise then that the law of God, which is the operating principle of his government, is simply an exposition of love. All it is, is a breakdown of what love looks like in practical terms, okay? Thus, the title of tonight's message is The Law of Love. The law of God is the foundation of his government, and his government is love, okay? So we're going to look at the law of God, and we're going to see that it actually is simply an articulation, an exposition of what it means to love, 
Let's go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, we find the great moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Now, we don't have time to read through the entire chapter and read every commandment to you, but likely you're at least superficially familiar with the Ten Commandments, but we can highlight them very briefly. Okay, Exodus chapter 20. Here the Lord gives a preamble to his law, just like our government has a preamble to the Constitution, and then it sets forth all the, the rights and privileges of citizenship. Here the Lord was going to make Israel his special people, and he gives them his law. He's like, if you're going to be my special nation, here's the law you abide by. Chapter 20 and verse 1 of the book of Exodus. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So here's who I am. I brought you out. You're going to be my people. So, number one, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? Commandment number one. This is how we deal with God. Number two is also about God. You shall, make, make, uh, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image. So, so no graven images. Commandment number two. Number three, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay? Number eight, uh, verse eight, number four, I'm sorry. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, so the first four commandments outline your duty to God. How you express your love to him. He said, have no other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Don't have any carved images. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Four commandments that outline your duty to the Lord. Then you'll notice a shift in the last six. And there's only 10, so we're 40% of the way done right now, Okay. Now go on to number five, which is verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. Okay? So you put them first. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Okay? Or King James Version, you shall not kill. You can't take someone else's life. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Don't take someone else's marriage or marriage partner. <laughs> verse 15, you shall not steal. Don't take other people's stuff. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't tell lies about someone else. Only tell the truth. In verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife nor his male servant. It lists all the stuff. Don't want for yourself all those things. And that's the entirety of the Ten Commandment law. The first four, as it says in your worksheet there, the first four commandments, the first table of the law as it's known, the first part, outlines our duty to whom? God. All the first four commandments about what you owe God, your duty to God. The second outlines our duty to our fellow man, to others. Thus, God's law is simply an explanation of love. You give yourself for the Lord. Here's what he requires, what he expects. And then you give yourself for others. You know what's fascinating, though? There's not a third table of the law. There isn't a table of the law that says, now, here's how you honor yourself. Here's how you take care of you. You look out for number one, right? That's not in there. There isn't it. That's the end of the Ten Commandments. You give to the Lord. You give for others. All done. And you can think, well, who's going to take care of me? Well, others will, because they're looking out for you. Your job is not to look out for yourself, but your job is to look out for others. You, you honor the Lord and have requirements to Him. You honor your fellow man and have everything is about others instead of yourself. But you contrast that with the spirit that Lucifer was saying, but what about you? How am I going to get for me, right? And he could imagine the war in heaven. We're going to outline this a little bit later, but you could imagine the, 
the subtlety and sophistry of Satan to come along and say, now wait a minute, have you noticed that God's law nowhere takes care of you? Brother, you've got to watch out for yourself. Right? You've got to take care of you. Look out for number one. But that's not in God's law. God's law is simply an explanation of love. Jesus, by the way, in the New Testament was questioned about this, and he gave the same answer we've just looked at here. Go to Matthew chapter 22. It's on the bottom of page 958. It begins there on the bottom right of 958 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 35. Jesus was constantly faced with difficult questions, people trying to trap him and put him in a corner and put him in a tough spot. And Jesus always answers so well. Again, starting with verse 35, Matthew chapter 22. Then one of them, a lawyer... And by the way, this is not lawyer in the sense of the legal codes of the land. This is a lawyer of the law of the Lord, right? A specialist in the Bible, an expert in the law. A lawyer asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Like, rank them from top to bottom. Which comes first? What comes second? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says in verse 40, On these two commandments, remember love for God and love for others, hang all the law and the prophets. Think about what he's saying there. He says the entirety, not just the moral law of God, not just the Ten Commandment Code, but the entire Old Testament, the whole law and the prophet, everything that God has spoken and given to us, hangs on these two principles. Love the Lord and love each other. Very simple. The greatest commandment is love. You have a love for the Lord, love for the others, and everything else in the Bible wraps around, or as Christ says, hangs on these two principles, love. By the way, Jesus, again, Matthew chapter 7, would say the same thing. Matthew chapter 7, in the same book, just back up a few chapters, Matthew chapter 7 in verse 12. Here this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, a little section, a little passage that we call, or more commonly known as the Golden Rule. You've probably heard about the Golden Rule growing up, right? Jesus articulates it so well, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do what? Do also to them. Very simple. Whatever you think, man, that would be nice for me, don't do it for you, but you do it for them. Right? So as you're tempted to look at yourself, think, no, 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 turn that back out to others. He calls this the golden rules. And then watch what he says. For this is the law and the prophets. I mean, if you were asked in one sentence, summarize the entire Old Testament, what would you come up with? One phrase, one idea, one thesis statement that encapsulate the entire Old Testament law and the prophets. When Christ was at that question, he was like, oh, that's easy. Do for others instead of yourself. Like, uh, seriously, everything, bo- yep, that's the entire, that is the single operating premise of God's government, is love 
for others manifested in giving. Love for the Lord, love for each other. Very simple, very simple. Matthew chapter 16. It makes sense then that Jesus would say these words. Matthew chapter 16, again going to the right, just a few chapters. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, like to follow me, to be a disciple of me, if anyone desires to come after me, what's the very first thing he needs to do? Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And then he articulates it this way, verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will what? Lose it. If you're interested in self-preservation and self-protection and self-self-self, you're going to lose your life because that doesn't fly in God's kingdom. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And it's one of those great ironies of Scripture. It seems almost oxymoronic, but in order to live, you have to first die. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It sounds so simple, but it's a drastic contrast, a sharp contrast to the selfishness that Lucifer was peddling around heaven. Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul picks up on this, and he articulates it in a different way. Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Sometimes these passages that the Apostle Paul writes are confusing to people because we just take that passage and we kind of twist it around, which Peter warned. He said, Paul sometimes wrote some confusing things which people twist to their own desires. But when you put these statements in the broader context of biblical teaching, they make perfect sense. Romans chapter 13, this is going to be page 9, uh, I'm sorry, 1095, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to do what? To love one another. And then notice what he says. For he who loves another has done what? Fulfilled the law. And we take our definition of love and say, oh, if I'm just nice and sweet to people, I guess I fulfilled the law. No, 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 no. Paul wasn't saying that. He was saying love is the grand principle, the great trajectory of the law. And if you truly love, you won't contradict the law. You'll fulfill the law, right? He who loves fulfills the law. That's the motive behind it. Galatians, let's go to the right one more time. Galatians chapter 5, page 1127. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. Again, this statement makes complete sense based on the study we've just done of God's Word. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. Notice what Paul says here. For all the law is, what's that word? Fulfilled in one word, even this. And now, you don't even have to know what the rest of the passage is. Tell me what that word is, love. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Very simple. When Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love. In fact, he goes on to say, if you do unto others what you would want others to do to you, you fulfilled all the law and the prophets. That's the whole thing. Thus the Apostle Paul picks that up and says, oh, no one anything except that you love one another. 
For he who loves has fulfilled the law. All the law is fulfilled in this one word, even this, that you love one another. Very simple. Now, let's go to page two, the other side. Once we have a picture of what true love is, and that that love is the foundation of God's law, and God's law is the foundation of his government, what it takes to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is you abide by God's law, and love means to give for others, that's what God's law articulates, it becomes little wonder why Lucifer has a big problem with God's law. Because it strikes at the very foundation of his character of selfishness, right? God's law is simply an articulation, a transcript of his character. It tells us who he is. He is love, and love looks like this, right? Satan, on the other hand, is not hatred. He is selfish, and God's law strikes at the very root of his principles, okay? So again, God's law is the foundation of that government, that is the government of God, a written version of who he is. When Satan beholds the law of God, he sees God's character. It's almost like looking into God's face. God's law is a continual reminder of God's purity in Satan's own evil character. No wonder Satan hates it. He can't stand God's law because it's a reminder of who he isn't. James chapter 1, page 1159, right there by the book of Hebrews, just to the right. James chapter 1, and starting with verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. By the way, that question came up earlier. How come people don't actually see more truth in Scripture? Well, I believe that they look at it, but they don't actually put it in, into application, and you become a deceiver of yourself. I mean, have you ever thought about that, that we are actually capable of deceiving ourselves by consciously turning away from what is true, choosing not to accept it, we turn into darkness. We turn aside, as the Apostle Paul would say, towards myths because we like them, right? But here the challenge is, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a what? In a mirror. It's like looking in a mirror and God's law, his word, shows you who you really are. That's what a mirror does. Do you know a mirror doesn't make you pretty? And a mirror doesn't make you ugly. A mirror simply reports the news, right? You show up and it's like, hi, this is who you are. But if you don't like the mirror, you take it out on the, and, and it's all, hey, don't blame the messenger. I'm just telling you the word, man. Right? But sometimes we can look at that and say, uh-oh, I've got, I got some changes I need to do. I don't match up with what I should be. I see myself for who I really am. I see God's law. I see God's word. And I realize that I don't measure up to the standard of righteousness. Ugh. And a lot, a lot of people do, do, is they take that mirror and just break that thing and smash it. Stupid mirror. I need to get a better mirror. You know, to make me to look too wide or something. I need to get one of those like funhouse mirrors that slims me down, you know, <laughs> or vice versa if that's your other part. I need to have a new mirror that shows me a better me, right? Instead of saying, no, the mirror is accurate. I'm just not where I need to be, right? James invokes that, invokes that same line of argument about the mirror. Notice what he says again. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Makes no changes whatsoever and just lets them know, well, I guess that's that mirror or whatever. I'm just going to go and have my... It doesn't make any change in the life, right? That's fascinating. But it goes on to say, but, verse 25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Look at one more. Romans chapter 7, page 1090. Romans chapter 7, page 1090. Notice what the purpose of the law is. And there's a great deal of talk in Christian circles about doing away with the law. Christ did away with the law. That's the Old Testament law. That's all law, law, law. It's done away. Now we have grace as though grace is somehow opposed to law. But by the way, the purpose of the law was never to be a means to salvation. It was simply to be a mirror to show you your true condition, to lead you to Jesus who brings salvation. And doing away with the law, then, would be doing away with that thing that shows you your need of Jesus. It's right up there with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, right? It's a dangerous thing to do. And thus Paul addresses this issue in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say, then? Is the law sin? Is it an evil, bad thing? Certainly not. And what does he say? On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Right? He said, I became aware of my problem when I looked into the perfect law of God and I said, hey, I'm not where I need to be. I would not have known sin except through the law. For why I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And notice the law he's talking about is the moral law, the Ten Commandment law of God. He said, I wouldn't have even known it. To the natural man, coveting is just what you do. Right? And so you come to the law of God and you realize, wait a minute, I'm this, but this says that I should be that. You're confronted. What should I do? Should I change me instead of being selfish? Should I become more selfless? Hmm. I would not have known sin except for the law. The law, back to our fill in the blank, is like a mirror because it shows you your true condition. By the way, the mirror is not supposed to be the thing that cleans you up either, is it? You see you're filthy in the mirror, you don't take the mirror and scrub it all over your face, right? That's weird, right? The, the law isn't the cure, it's simply the tool that diagnoses the problem that leads you to the cure, right? It leads you to Jesus. So it's dangerous to say, I'm going to get away from the law because the law leads us to Jesus. And Paul says, no, 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 just because we're under grace doesn't mean we're done with the law. The law has a purpose. Its purpose isn't to save you, but it's to be the means that lets you know you need to be saved and to drive you to Jesus. The law is like a mirror because it shows you your true condition. Now, I have that next fill in the blank here because of this. Oftentimes when you present the importance, the significance, the necessity of keeping God's law, people will say, well, you're just trying to make me feel guilty. 
right? That's why I don't come to church. That's why more young people don't come to church. I don't want to feel guilty. I don't like feeling, you're trying to make me feel guilty. Have you ever noticed there is an absolutely direct correlation between feeling guilty and being guilty? You cannot make me feel guilty for some junk I didn't do, right? If you were to come out in the parking lot at night and accuse me of smuggling drugs, you can yell at me, call me names, but you know what you won't make me feel? Guilty. You know why? Because I didn't do it, right? There's a direct, but if there was something that really hit home and stepped on a nerve, I'd get defensive, ah, right? And the reason you feel guilty is because you are guilty most of the time. And we don't like to feel guilty, so we want to go away from the mirror. I don't like this mirror. It's always showing me. You know, there's a, there's a story in the Bible of a, of, a, of a king who was about to go to war. And he had hundreds of other prophets that always just tell him good news. And he was trying to get another king on board to, to work with him, to ally with him against their enemy. And the other king said, um, is there a prophet of the Lord around? Sure, we've got tons of prophets around. And every one of them came in. Go to battle. Good news. Good news. You're going to win. You're the greatest. Rah, rah, rah. And the other one said, isn't there an actual genuine prophet, though, that will tell us the truth? And the king says, yes, there's the one, but I've thrown him in prison. <laughs> because he's always telling me stuff I don't want to hear, right? Now, that's not wisdom. But people do that with the law of God, with the word of God. It's like, I don't know. Again, it goes back to that. Everybody wants to know what the word of God says till they find out what the word of God says. They're like, oh, no. I was just coming in for a pick-me-up, make me feel good, but apparently I'm wrong. And I need to change. And then you're faced with a choice. Will I, as Christ said, if anyone who wants to come after me, let him deny himself? and start forming this direction of a character? Or do you, I, I, and start following that other ideology? The entire great controversy whittles down to a battle between these two prevailing concepts of selflessness or selfishness. It's all about that. And that's why the God's law is the battleground. Satan wants you to get off of God's law because it realizes, it points out his deficiency in God's glory, the beauty of his character. And he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. By the way, misery does love company. That's true. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, page 831 As soon as Satan started having these, and again, it was in his heart, we've covered this ground before, but I want to bring it to light in this study. As soon as Lucifer started having these selfish ambitions, these uh, self-aggrandizing thoughts, he decided to pass them around the courts of heaven, right? Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 16, speaking of Lucifer at his fall, well, in fact, let's just skip back up to verse 15. Describes his character before, his behavior, his person. You were, what is that word in verse 15? Perfect. In your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found, where? In you. In the same thing as Isaiah 14 says, for you have said in your heart, I, 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 right? He says, you used to be perfect until iniquity or sin was found in you. But what did he do with that iniquity and that sin? Did he keep it to himself? No, 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 no. He starts to spread it around. 
By the way, just a little aside. Anyone who truly comes to Christ and becomes, has a character formed after him will start to tell other people about it. They will start to witness for him. Same thing happens on the other side. Once you set your character in one direction, you start peddling those ideas around. You're going to be a living witness for one side or the other. And this is exactly what Lucifer started doing in the courts of heaven. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. Some versions say merchandise. You became filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Again, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Again, like Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, your heart was lifted up. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love is not puffed up, right? But he's turned off that love and started being about self. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And again, notice again, verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, the iniquity of your what? Trading or traffic, as some versions say. He was peddling something around the courts of heaven. And as we've seen the, uh, a few nights ago, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 16, which is page 112, that same word for traffic or for trading, for merchandise that's used in Ezekiel 28 is also used in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, where the Lord says, you shall not go about as a tail-bearer among your people. So that what was he peddling in heaven? Falsehoods, tales, things that were not true. Ezekiel chapter 22, again, that same root word is translated this time not for trading or for tail-bearing, but it's translated this time as slander. Right? And what does it mean if someone slanders you? What have they done? They've said some stuff about you that's not true, and it's what's the purpose of them saying it? To make themselves look good or make you look bad, right? To smear your character. Apparently, Satan went around because of this selfishness in his heart, and he started telling things, trading ideas around the courts of heaven. Tales, falsehoods, slanderous lies. In fact, John 8, 44. Jesus says this. Remember we had that discussion between Jesus and those rulers of the religious leaders at the time? And Jesus said, I speak the things that I've seen with my father, but you are of your father, the devil. Right? John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because... There's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. What was Lucifer doing in the courts of heaven? Lying, telling tales, slandering God, talking bad about God, running his character down to make his position look bad and his to look so good. This is what was going on in heaven. And by the way, that's exactly what happened when he was cast out of heaven. He was sent down to the earth and he took those same ideas and he infected humanity with that disease of selfishness. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. It's page 2 in your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll see the same slanderous lies, the same tales that he was telling 
around the courts of heaven, repeated here, introducing humanity not to fidelity to God's law, but now to seek after a new law, the law of self-seeking. Starting with verse 1, now the serpent, which of course we've seen that word serpent in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9, where the great dragon was cast to the earth, and it calls him the devil or Satan, that serpent of old. Here's that serpent. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Some versions say crafty, right? He's more subtle. He's devious, sneaky. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And notice his reason for saying that. For God knows. The implication being God knows and you don't. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Like you're going to see new things. You have bigger ideas. You're going you're to see a true conception of the world. Something's been withheld from you. God's trying to hold something back, but you go for yours, right? How do they say? You do you, right? Take care of yourself. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And listen to this line of reasoning. And you will be what? Like God. The same mentality that stirred his heart in the beginning, I will exalt, I will ascend, I will be like God. He comes and says, you know, you can have that too. You've been put under someone's thumb. You've been in a position that you deserve more. You, deserve, you shouldn't have to obey these petty laws. You've never done anything wrong. Why are all these rules inflicted on you? What you can eat, what you can't eat. You decide for yourself. And he infected humanity with that same ideology of selfishness. Because notice what happens. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was pleasing to the eyes, and also a tree desirable to do what? To make one wise. I want that forbidden secret wisdom that's on the other side. I want more. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Did they get a new realization of life? Did things change? Yes. But it wasn't that high exaltation they were looking for, right? And they realized they were naked. That robe of innocent light, that covering that had draped them, gone away and they're standing there vulnerable exposed and their number one thing is to cover up right and they knew they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering verse 8 the lord comes and speaks with them as he had tried to some as i had done so often and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I can't even imagine how painful that must have been for God. Right? I mean, 
my youngest son's only one. He can't even walk yet. But if I come in the room and he starts running away, starts crawling away, why? why, why? <laughs> no. Here he's made them in his image. He's given them dominion over the whole planet. And he comes to have that daily walk and talk. But they can't be in the presence of God because now they are guilty. By the way, with God showing up, was he trying to make them feel guilty? No. They just were guilty. And they felt that they had to hide. They felt that they had to hide. I believe that the Lord is looking for a genuine, open, honest relationship with his fallen beings once again. Now, we can't have the face-to-face communication with God. His purity and glory and character and holiness would destroy us instantly. But through a knowledge of his word and an acquaintance with the law of God, seeing lived out in the life of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that by beholding we become changed and God wants us to become those people who can have that relationship again. So our natural inclination is not to run away and get defensive and hide and object and obfuscate, but to say, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. I'm sorry. If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's a reason that Satan is so angry at God's law. It's not because the law is bad, or because the law is sinful, the law is evil, or the law is flawed in some way, or the law is too high a standard you can't attain. No, 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 no. The reason Satan is so upset at God's law is it because it defines the character of God and it shows the contrast between that character and the character of Satan. And he doesn't like being shown the truth. And he has instilled that mindset, that ideology, into humanity. So when confronted with the Word of God, we're like, oh, oh I don't like this. He's trying to make me feel good. Don't like that. But get it away. Hi. We fight it. We wrestle against it. But the same God that came and walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve is the same God who speaks to us through his word today. And notice what he says, John chapter 14 and verse 15. Notice how beautifully simple, so blind this principle is. Page 1043, John chapter 14 and verse 15. Jesus himself says it this way. Such a beautiful refrain. John 14 verse 15. If you love me, do what? keep my commandments. How simple is that? If you love me, keep my commandments. It's so simple. It sounds so wonderful, so practical, but for some reason, the Christian world even looks at obedience to God's law as something we need to get rid of. It's restrictive. Christ says, no, 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 no. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. By the way, Hebrews chapter 8, let me show you this one. In case this question ever comes up, Hebrews chapter 8, page 1152 in your pew Bible, Hebrews chapter 8, in verse 8. Well, let's start with verse 7, just because people say, well, I'm a, new co- I'm a new covenant Christian, the old law, the old covenant, the old testament is done away with it. I'm new testamental, I'm new covenant, not under law, but under grace. But I want to show you something fascinating. What the Bible says about the new covenant. Hebrews 8, starting with verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. They say, aha, so there was a fault in the covenant. So we needed a new one. Let me tell you something. God doesn't make faulty things. 
What was the issue with the first covenant? It was not the law of God, but it was the location of that law. Watch now verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day when I took them out by the hand and led them to the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws, where? In their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Notice the problem with the old covenant wasn't the law, it was the people. Right? And he said, instead of just having them in granite tablets, I'm going to ingrain them in the minds and hearts. I want to have that law not be an external thing. I want to make it part of who they are. I want to develop the character of Christ within the followers of Christ. I'm going to write it on their very hearts. The old covenant was just simply a problem of location. The new covenant is the same law, just inscribed in the heart. So we become like the God who we serve. Again, again, what's new about the new covenant is not its law, but its location. Over and over again, and notice these beautifully balanced statements here. God promises us freedom not from the law, but freedom for the law. If we become like Christ, then we can keep his law. We fulfill his law, and our joy is complete. God wants us to keep his law, not so he'll love us. Please don't ever let that be in mind. If I keep the law of God enough, then he'll love me. Right? But that's not at all what the Bible says. God so loved the world that he gave his only. He loved us first, and our response is a response of love. If you love me, keep my commandments. Not so that I'll love you. It's like, if you love me, keep my commandments. God wants us to keep his law, not so he'll love us, but because we trust that he already does. And I want to emphasize this last point here. While God has absolutely no interest in the word I'm looking for there is legalism. People say, oh, you people that talk about the law of God, you're just trying to earn your way to heaven. Just trying to keep the law so you can be saved. No, friends, it's not that. That is legalism. Keeping God's law is not legalism, but it is loyalty. Okay? God has no interest in legalism, just doing what you can to check off a list and get into heaven. No, 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 no. But he wants loyalty so that we have a character that fits into heaven, right? God has absolutely no interest in legalism, but has every expectation of loyalty. By the way, when I'm faithful to my wife, it's not so she'll stay married to me. If you get to that point, something is off, and I would recommend counseling, right? The only reason I'm not doing other stuff is because, oh, man, she's going to throw the hammer down. And I don't. That's not why you do it, right? You keep that fidelity because you love. If you love me, keep my commandments. Final text, Psalm 119, page 591. Psalm 119, verse 174. The longest chapter in Scripture, Psalm 119. Verse 174. Notice what the the writer says here. So beautiful. He says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my what? Delight. 
Friends, God doesn't give us his law to say, like, here's something that's going to make you miserable. No, no, no. He says, this is who I am. And I want you to be like me so we can be together once again. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's not legalism, friends. It's loyalty. Has tonight's presentation made sense? Was it logical? Was it clear? Praise the Lord. All right. We're going to build on that as we go forward. We're going to lay this principle that keeping God's law is not legalism. It's a demonstration of loyalty and fidelity, and it's a transcript of God's character that he wants to write in our hearts. And as we go forward, we're going to build on that platform of a biblical foundation. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you give us your law, which describes your very character of selflessness. But Lord, we understand that the natural man is drawn towards selfishness and is bent towards the character of your enemy. Lord, help us to not disregard your law or disgrace or discourage following it. But Lord, help us to truly see that your law is simply a transcript of who you are and we see ourselves in the light of it. And we understand that each one of us has fallen and come short of the glory of God. But we also know that we have an advocate with the Father And that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to have a genuine, real, loving relationship with you. Not based on legalism and a checklist of things we have to do to get in. But Lord, help us to have a genuine, vibrant relationship with you. Where we want to demonstrate our loyalty because we love you. We want to keep your commandments. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.